John 1.14 says, The Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Our prayer is that you might see God's love and faithfulness as you listen to our Sunday morning message here at First Methodist Bryan. Uh, if you are here today with us and you have your Bibles and you want to open them up, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series today on the book of Nehemiah that will take us all the way to the end of June. Very exciting time. Nehemiah is right after, it's considered a history book. So it's after First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah is where it's at in the Old Testament. Uh, good to be with y'all here today. My name is Pastor Jeremy Bass. Uh, and as we look at this story of Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah is about uh, the guy who comes and rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. And it's a story about rebuilding. It's a story about hope. And it's a story that I think that we need to hear in this time and season, in this life of our church. So to give a bit of context for the book of Nehemiah before we get into our opening ch uh, passage for today. This is after a period of what was called the, the Babylonian captivity. So there's this period in Israel's history where their constant sin and idolatry finally reaches a breaking point with God. And the Lord uh, takes the people of Israel and ships them off to Babylon for about 70 years where they live in exile during a period of time of repentance and uh, sort of a purification or pruning. And then after this period of 70 years, the people then return back to the city of Jerusalem, return back to Judah, return back to that area when the Persian Empire arises. And they return back to Jerusalem to find that the city has been ransacked, destroyed, burned to the ground. When Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem, they sacked the city, hauled off the golden articles from the temple, leveled the temple to its very foundations, destroyed the walls, and then they come back and start the process of rebuilding. And Ezra, the book right before Nehemiah, is about them coming back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And the time of Nehemiah takes place after the book of Ezra, after the temple has been rebuilt. What we'll find, though, is that Jerusalem is not quite safe and the walls of Jerusalem have not been rebuilt. So we're going to be reading Nehemiah 1, all of chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was in the fortress of Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who have returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, 
O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying day and night for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands and decrees and regulations that you have given to us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are faithful to me, I will scatter you. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, even then when you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place that I have chosen for you, for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. And in those days, I was the cupbearer of the king. The word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And the focus of this passage, as we see, is Nehemiah is kind of obsessing and focusing on the state of the walls of Jerusalem. And so why were walls so important? It's hard for us to understand because, I mean, we don't have a wall around Bryan and College Station, do we? It's just very open. You just suddenly drive in and boom, you're hit with city. Uh, but for most of human history, the way that you protected yourself from raiders and from conquering armies was by having a really good and strong wall. Uh, because they didn't have airplanes, they didn't really have siege equipment, was fairly hard to construct and very expensive. And if you had a good, strong wall, you could defend against the mightiest army. In fact, before Jerusalem was sacked during Babylon, there was another time when a strong invading army came and besieged Jerusalem. And because they had such a strong wall, the army was not able to come and conquer Jerusalem. That if you have a strong wall and you have good gates, you can keep out an invading army. I mean, think back to the stories that we tell in our history, the, the, the story of the Odyssey and the Iliad, where they're trying to, the Greeks are trying to go and conquer Troy, and they can't break through Troy's walls, if y'all remember that story. So what do they do? They build a Trojan horse to sneak through the walls, that a good and powerful wall can defend against even the mightiest army. And so here Nehemiah is hearing the reports about the city of God in ruin and devastation because their walls have not been rebuilt, that they're vulnerable from their enemies, the gates have been burned down, and that the great city of God that the Jews prided themselves on is in devastation and ruin. And here you have Nehemiah, a high-ranking Persian official. It says at the end of this that he was the king's cupbearer, that he was a person who was close to the king. And so you have this contingent of people who come to Nehemiah, and they're basically asking, can you help us to rebuild the wall? And look at what Nehemiah's response is, verses 3 and 4. They said to me, things are not going well for those of us who have returned to Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed. And when I heard this, this is what Nehemiah says, 
I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned. I fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. That Nehemiah mourns over the destruction of the holy city. He mourns over the destruction of Jerusalem. So as we look at our day and time and the lessons that I think Nehemiah is teaching us, I think the first lesson we can take away is that it is okay for us to mourn over brokenness and devastation. It's okay for us to mourn over our brokenness and devastation. When Nehemiah hears the reports of how the city of God is, he weeps. For days it says that he weeps. One of my passions in ministry is, is healing ministry. And one of the lessons that I learned in doing healing ministry is that true healing, true radical transformative healing of the soul can't happen until you acknowledge the hurt that you've experienced. That in order to truly experience the transformative power of God in your life, you have to first acknowledge what the hurt is. And oftentimes, acknowledging or not acknowledging that hurt can in and of itself be a barrier to healing because you're trying to heal something that you haven't even acknowledged that you need healing for. Friends, and as we look at ourselves, we look at the service, and we maybe even look at our church, have we been honest with ourselves? That we try so hard to suppress the feelings of brokenness that seem to surround us. And as we begin to rebuild, friends, we first have to be a people who mourn over the state of how things are. We have to first mourn over what has been lost. And I'm going to be real honest with you all for a second because I believe that's the best way to lead. Um, and I want us to ask ourselves and I want us to be honest with ourselves is have we as a congregation, as a church, or maybe just you personally, have we mourned over the fallout of what has happened at this church? Specifically, maybe what's happened at this service over the past five months. Have we been like Nehemiah and heard the reports of the devastation of Jerusalem and mourned at the brokenness? Have we wept over the brokenness of the walls? Have we wept at the state of the holy city? Have we wept at the state that we maybe feel like we find ourselves in? Because Jesus desires to bring healing, hope, and as we talked about last week, resurrection, restoration to his church. But in order to find healing and hope and to rebuild and find restoration, we have to first acknowledge that maybe there's something Jesus wants to fix. We have to first mourn over what has been lost. Nehemiah, before he does anything, he hears the reports and he mourns and he weeps over the devastation. He weeps and mourns over Jerusalem. And that is an invitation for us as well. That we can be a people who first maybe need to weep and mourn over what's been lost. And then afterwards, after the period of mourning, after Nehemiah laments over what's been lost, look at what it, then he does. For some days I mourned, and then it says, I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. 
I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven that we mourn and we acknowledge the brokenness and we acknowledge the burned down walls and the burned down gates. And then it says, he fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. And this is the fundamental truth is that prayer and fasting is the pathway to rebuilding. Prayer and fasting prepares the way for rebuilding. And and what we'll see as we go throughout the book of Nehemiah, that this is sort of the first instance that Nehemiah prays. But as we go forward, we find that Nehemiah himself is a man of deep prayer. That there is an issue that arises and Nehemiah will say a prayer. There is a good thing that happens and Nehemiah will give a prayer of thanks. That when he needs help, he'll say a prayer that his life will find is categorized by deep prayer prayer and any rebuilding effort that we desire to have for this church or this service needs to have that foundation of prayer a foundation of seeking the face of God because fundamentally this is God's church not ours and if we want to look to the face of God to rebuild us we need to be a people who pray and fast for the Lord to come you know when I was growing up one of the things that we loved to do was go to the beach. It was one of our favorite vacation spots. We were about 30 minutes away from Galveston, and so we just loved to go to the beach all the time. And one of the things me and my brother used to love to do was build sandcastles. Did any of y'all growing up love building sandcastles? Or maybe any adults still love building sandcastles. It's so fun because you can like plan and strategize and come up with this great design, and you have all these like cool molds and shapes and you'll you'll spend just hours and hours just building this magnificent structure of a sandcastle me and my brother would just love building these elaborate sandcastle structures and we'd go and we'd find all these little shells and use it to decorate our mighty wall and our mighty city or fortress that we had built that day but what was interesting is every time we would then come the next day what would happen to that sandcastle it would have fallen down. The high tide comes in and it destroys the sandcastle. Exactly right, Cooper. Because that's what happens when we do any type of rebuild effort and it's not built on the Lord and it's not built on a foundation of prayer. It's like we're children building sandcastles on the beach. It can be impressive for a while. It can maybe last for a while, but any foundation that's not built on what God is doing is not bound to last. And what we'll see in this book, what we'll see in Nehemiah, is that uh, the rebuilding effort of Nehemiah building the walls back up is a supernatural movement of God that he accomplishes in a short span of time. And what we'll see is that whenever Nehemiah comes up against anything, he is a person of prayer, that he spends days praying and fasting. And scripture makes this clear link between the walls being rebuilt and all this mighty favor of God pouring himself out over the people of God to Nehemiah's prayer life. That when Nehemiah prayed and fasted for the Lord to move, the Lord responded to his prayers and fasting. And so when we come up to things that we face, either in this church or in our own life, do we have the similar heart of Nehemiah? 
to immediately go to the Lord in prayer, or do we treat it more as like an emergency room last resort, something that we'll do if things get really bad? Or do we treat it as the first thing that we do? There's this quote from Pete Gregg in uh, one of my favorite prayer books that he wrote. He says this about intercessory prayer or praying for things. He says, secretly we wonder if our little prayers can make an actual difference in the face of vast problems. If our whispered prayers, our whispered prayers can seem feeble, foolish, and even futile against the sheer scale of life's troubles, like a butterfly confronting a cliff. And yet, the Bible teaches that our prayers are vastly powerful. Because there may be someone in this room, as I'm talking about praying for rebuild or just praying for God to come and move, you're like, yeah, 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 that's cool. But that's really not the main work that you're supposed to do. That's really just like something that you tack on at the end. I remember my dad was telling me actually, uh, a few years ago, my dad's a pastor, for those of y'all who don't know. He's actually here today, so small small coincidence. Um, <clears throat> but he, his church was struggling uh, coming back from COVID, and he was trying a bunch of different strategies, and he went to the New Room Conference, which is a thing that Seedbed puts on every year. And during one of the worship services, he said he felt the Lord say to him, uh, Jim, you cannot rebuild this church by strategy. You can only rebuild this church by prayer. Friends, do we really believe that our prayers make a difference? Do we believe that the work of being a Christian is to live a life of prayer? Do we believe that our feeble prayers make a difference? Scripture says over and over and over again, yes, they do. It's a resounding yes that scripture says. We see it here in the book of Nehemiah that the prayer of Nehemiah, as we'll see next week as we talk about what happens as a result of Nehemiah's prayer, it moves the heart of an emperor. The prayer of Nehemiah moves the heart of a king, moves the heart of one of the most powerful men in earth at that time. And scripture just makes this explicit link. Nehemiah prays for this to happen, and God answers that prayer for the walls to be restored. And friends, if we fast and pray, if we are a people who seek after God in prayer, I believe that our God is faithful to answer our prayer. I mean, just think back to the days of Pentecost, the early church, the birth of the church. It was not 10,000 people. It was a small group of about 100 people earnestly praying together in, in a room. And then the Spirit of God falls upon them. This type of prayer that Nehemiah prays is what's called travailing prayer in church history. Uh, it's this sort of deep gut-wrenching prayer of the soul. I'm sure you all have prayed it before in your life. It's sort of this just rending of your heart, just this pouring out of your soul before God himself. And Nehemiah says here in this prayer, he's basically saying, God, do you not see the devastation of Jerusalem? God, look at your people. God, won't you do something? God, remember the promises that you made to us. 
God, you told us that if we did this, you would be faithful. He's calling God to say, you are a God who makes promises to us. Be faithful to your promises, church. I believe that the Lord is calling us right now as a church to be a people who have this type of heart-wrenching gut prayer to the heart of God for this church and for this community. I mean, look at where God has placed us locationally, geographically within this community. We're First Methodist Brian. We've been here for over 150 years. That when God planted this church, he did it right in the heart of the community. We're a few blocks away from downtown. We're a church that is placed right in the heart of the city of Bryan. Will we be a people who cry out for the Lord to come and make the kingdom of heaven look a bit more like, up, like down here like it is up there? Lord, come and make Bryan as it is in heaven. Lord, let your heart for this city become our heart for this city. Lord, won't you come and do a new thing among us? Will we be so bold to pray like Nehemiah does? Lord, come and do a new thing. Lord, come and rebuild these walls. Lord, come and rebuild this service. Come and do a new thing among us, Lord. Will we be a people who seek the face of God in prayer? Or will we be a people who try to strategize our way to try to build sandcastles to rebuild? Because this is how Nehemiah prays. As we look at our own prayer life and as we look at praying for this church and praying for this community, here's how he does it. He first starts off by declaring who God is starts off by declaring who God is. He says in verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. He starts by declaring the majesty and the splendor of God. I think I, I do this in my own life sometimes too, that you can kind of pray like safe, easy, comfortable prayers, prayers that don't really challenge or uh, push us outside of our comfort zone. And I think one of the reasons we maybe pray smaller prayers is we forget who it is we're praying to, that we're praying to the God of heaven, the God of resurrection. The God who creates galaxies for his splendor that no eye will ever see but that delight and glory in the Lord. The God who does miracles in our midst. The God who makes the blind to see and the lame to walk. That that is the God that we're praying to. And sometimes it's helpful for us as we start our prayers, as we start this sort of travailing, heart-wrenching prayers to remind ourselves, who is this God that we're praying to? We are praying to the God who comes and does wonderful things in our midst. So he starts off his prayer by declaring who God is. And then he confesses his sin. He declares who God is, and then he confesses his sin. Look at verses 6 through 7. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. 
that the way that Nehemiah prays, if you notice the way that he prays, he confesses the sin both personally, his own individual sins before God, but he also confesses corporately the sin of his community. That is something that we need to be a people who do. We need to be a people who get comfortable with confessing sin. All confession of sin is, I think we make too big a deal out of confession of sin. It's just basically telling God stuff that he already knows. Lord, I know that I've done this against you. And I know that you know that I've done this against you. Lord, won't you come and forgive me? Lord, won't you come and take this from me? Because there is never a revival, there is never an awakening without first a confession of sin. If y'all remember the Asbury revival, I don't know if Rick talked about it when he was preaching. Um, The Asbury revival that happened at Asbury University about a month ago. Uh, One of the factors of that revival was students were just pouring out their hearts just confessing sin to one another confessing sin before God because as God calls us to be his holy people as God calls us to be resurrection people we are to be a people who cast our sin away from ourselves into the cross right where it belongs that if we want to be a people who pray for this church and pray for this community we need to first look inward at ourselves and say Lord what have I done that has offended you and just give that right back to him Nehemiah declares who God is he confesses his sin and then after that he then cries out for intervention that's what verses 8 through 11 are about is Nehemiah crying out for intervention please remember what you told your servant Moses if you are unfaithful to me I will scatter you among the nations but if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored O Lord hear my prayer in verse 11 Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Grant me success by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. That's only after that. After we recognize the majesty and splendor of our God, lay all of our junk before him. Then do we come and cry out saying, God, come do something among us. Lord, remember your faithfulness. Lord, remember your covenant among us. Lord, remember these promises that you give us. And he asks bold things of God, doesn't he? Lord, make it so that way when I go and ask the king for a favor that he looks favorable to me. Lord, put it on the heart of the king to be kind to me. Lord, you promised you would do this thing. Lord, come and do it now. One of the things that they taught us at Asbury Seminary, um, Dr. Tennant would say this over and over, the president of the seminary. He would say that we need to be people who dream so big that unless God intervenes, it won't succeed. We need to be people who pray so big, who have high aspirations, who have high expectations of God. I want us to be a church who dreams boldly with Jesus who dreams big, who desires for God to come and do a new and mighty thing in our midst, to pray with the heart of God. I want to close with this illustration as the band comes back up. 
I don't know if you ever you ever gone camping and you you have like a little fire, and uh, or maybe even in your backyard you have a little fire pit, and after a while, uh, you know when a fire the fuel dies down, you eventually have embers, right? And like there's there's no raging fire, but you have kind of embers, and there's always this choice that you then have when you see the embers of the fire. You can either add more wood to the fire, and use your breath to kind of bring it back to life and have it become a roaring fire again or you can decide to just leave it be and have all those embers turn to ash friends I think that we as a church are at a crossroads right now I think that we are a church where maybe embers is too dire but maybe our fire has gone down or maybe it feels like we have embers now embers aren't a bad thing. In fact, I believe that embers are the moment that the Spirit of God works most powerfully. But there's always this then choice that we have before us. Will we be a people who ask for the Spirit of God to come and add more fuel to our fire and have His Spirit have a mighty wind rush onto those embers and become a blazing fire for His glory? Or will we be a people who does nothing and lets the embers become ash? Church, my challenge for us today is that we would pray for God to let the embers become a mighty bonfire once again. We would pray for the Spirit of God to blow through this place that, you know, when we think about embers and we sort of compare it to like the church, if I tried to blow my spirit into this church, it would be like little baby Elias trying to just blow little raspberries into a fire. It's not really going to work very well. Like when you have a little baby and they're trying to blow out like their first birthday candle, what do you have? You have like the parents stand behind them and they'll be the ones who actually blow out the fire. That we can try to do this on our own, but really it's the Spirit of God and Him pouring Himself out over us that does all the work. Friends, I would challenge you today to ask yourselves, where is God calling me to pray for this church, to fast for this church, to, for him to do something new? Uh, you may have noticed on the altar rails, there's these little magnets uh, that I would encourage y'all to take one, or if you feel like you know what you want to do, to just write on it already. But to take one and bring it to a place where you uh, live or work or wherever you would see this magnet. And on it, it has Nehemiah 1.4, and then it says, I will commit to either fast, fast and pray, or just pray for this church and this service. And then it has the day and time. Friends, I would encourage us to be a people who pray for God to come and do something new, to not just have human strategies for God to come and do something new, but to really build it on a foundation of prayer. My commitment to y'all is that every Wednesday until the Lord tells me to stop, I will be in the prayer chapel fasting and praying from 12 to 1 every single week. Friends, would you join me in fasting and praying for this church? Would you join the great saints that have fasted and prayed for the church of Jesus Christ? Will we be like Nehemiah and go before the Lord before we do anything else? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening with us. We hope that you have encountered the risen Jesus today. If you want to hear more, please consider subscribing. We would also welcome you to join us in person. 
For more information, please visit us at fmcbryan.org.